This, this passage in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is a bedrock of ecclesiology. And uh, that's a big word, but basically ecclesiology is a study of the church. Um, ecclesia is the Greek word for church. Study of the church. And so when we, when we think about how we do church life, we think about why we do church life, I think that, that this passage has to be a centerpiece of our ecclesiology. has to be a centerpiece of how we understand and implement and live out being uh, the church that Jesus has called us to be. So, uh, with that, let's go ahead and, and dive into the passage. The, the, the context of this leading into to chapter 2 is Paul is talking about the, the outward persecution that the church is facing. Uh, in the, the Greco-Roman world, there's a tongue twister there, in the Greco-Roman context that they were in, the church was, was facing immense persecution. And from what we can assume from this passage as well, there might have been some internal discord going on, maybe. Uh, maybe some, some people who were not getting along. And, and, and we see that in some of Paul's writings throughout, that, uh, that there are people that he urges to be reconciled to one another. And, and, and we can only assume with a church that's as diverse as the church at Philippi that there's probably some discord going on. Or he wants to prevent it. And here's why. It's so interesting because the, the guy who was once Saul that's now become Paul, he was once a perpetrator of the agenda to divide, intimidate, and eradicate the church. He stood there and, and held the cloak of Stephen as he was martyred, the first martyr who was killed for the, for the sake of the gospel. Paul was, was the, the guy who was at the center of it. He was trying to exterminate the church. And so he's now... Now that he's, been, he's met Jesus and his life has been radically changed, he's now encouraging believers to live in harmony with one another because he knows that the force that will prevent the church from fulfilling its mission is not by way of external opposition. Because the, the, in the words of Jesus, he said, the kingdom of heaven has overcome the gates of hell. So there's nothing that the evil one or the enemy can do. There's nothing that external opposition can do to thwart the agenda of the gospel. Rather, I think Paul is making the point that it's internal turmoil that can rip the church apart. It's believers not getting along with other believers that's the issue. And so we'll see that in this passage today. And the question that we're answering is, is within church life, why should we set aside our differences and seek unity at all times? I think that, that brings us to the main point, and that's that we have to have love for Jesus foremost and love for others as well. And so our main point is really simple today. Love others as Jesus loves you. So, so no, no you know, super over-theological solution to this. It's all really simple. As we, as we look and survey who the person of Jesus is, as we look at the commands in the gospel, love others as Jesus loves you. So starting in, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, it says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not only look to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that 
of Jesus Christ. So we have kind of a, a poetic start here uh, to the to the uh, passage. This is if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. What what Paul is saying here is, since you have experienced, since you have tasted and seen who Jesus is, then you should live in in such a way. And so all the believers had that in common. So the, the if, the, the, the qualifier there, really is a because. Because you have experienced these things, then make my joy complete. What, what I think he's saying there is, is Paul's concerned about them. And, and his joy would be complete if they would live in, in unity and, and uh, do away with, with turmoil uh, in, their, in their church. And uh, I think that this comes straight out of uh, John chapter 13, verse 34, right after Jesus had washed the disciples' feet and he's commissioning them out. He says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So love, loving one another is hardwired into our identity as Christ followers. So, what happens then if we don't love each other well within the context of the church? Those on the outside could say, well, they might not be Jesus followers after all. They might not know Jesus after all. Jesus is saying, the, the identifying marker that you are my people is based off of how you love one another. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of ways that we would say... Uh, you know, kind of, kind of make up the the DNA or uh, the anatomy of a church or a people who follow God, and kind of far down the list, we might put how they interact with one another. But Jesus is saying the world will know that you are my disciples based off of how you love one another. So we have to love each other well. Paul talks about how to do that later in, in the next part of the, of the passage. In verse 2, he says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. This concept of being one in spirit, uh, is, is a, uh, there's a, actually a special word for how Christians interact with one another. It's called koinonia. It's fellowship that's produced by the Spirit. Fellowship that is produced by the Spirit. So I can go right now, because of this, I can go to any part of the world, someone who looks and sounds and does everything completely different than me, but if they know Jesus and they've been saved by Him, then we can have koinonia. We can have fellowship. We can have everything in common despite everything external being different. How remarkable is that? That we can share a supernatural bond that God has grafted together and joined our souls. That sounds really mushy and feely, right? That, that, we could, that, that we could experience that type of connection with somebody. You know, we, we talked about at the beginning in our greeting question, you know, what's something that, that, that makes you bond to someone really quickly? And obviously, it being fall, uh, I'm sure some of you talked about college football. You know, you see, and Tim referenced that too, you see someone with a hat on, you might give them a roll tide or a war eagle. 
Or uh, maybe, and, and, and here's another phenomenon, uh, when depending on what week it is in the season, you might bond with other teams because you unite over a common enemy, right? Nothing, nothing brings people together stronger than a common enemy, right? So maybe, maybe your team is, you know, playing, uh, you know, some other school that they hardly ever play, and then you know you've got a, two, two conference rivals going at it, and you have a disdain that's a little higher from for one team than it is the other. So you root really hard for for that other team against your your foe, right? I'm guilty of it, <laughs> but. Um, there's there's things that, that that create a bond between people. Maybe it's an, an activity that you do. Maybe um, maybe you like to jog or exercise, and, and all of a sudden uh, you know you you bond over the fact that uh, you know you have the same preference in running shoes, or you have the uh, you know uh, you like using the certain GPS watch to tell you uh, you know you, to keep track of your running and all that, and so. There are things that uh, just naturally we, we bond over common interests. Um, maybe if you, if you see someone who is from the same hometown as you, uh, you, know, you, the, you were shaped by the same place that you came from, and it's really quick to develop a bond with that person. And then if you're, if you're in the dating realm, you, know, you want to make sure that uh, you don't have any common relatives uh, if you're from Alabama. You know? <laughs> It'd be really, really quick. Like, okay, so how do you know that person? How do you know them? So you start making some connections there. Um, you got to be careful about making those bonds. But, but you definitely, um, definitely want to check that out. But... It's, it's a strong uh, uniting force for us uh, when, when, when we can find something in common with someone. And, and I think that the, the inverse of that is true in that you develop an interest in things that those that you love have an interest in. I know if, you've, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Elf and uh, Buddy is walking up to meet Jovi for the first time and he says, I see that you share an affinity for elf culture. <laughs> and she's like, no, I work at a department store. Like, I have to wear this as part of my job. Um, or uh, even uh, Nacho Libre. I'm, I'm really giving y'all, a, uh, I'm giving y'all a, just a sampling of my taste in movies. But uh, he's, he's talking with Encarnacion and she's like... Um, I love puppies and volleyball and the color pink or something like that. And he's like, all of your favorite things are my favorite things too. <laughs> right? Just because, obviously, he has an interest in her and is going to adopt her things and, and wants to bond with her over those things so he can get to spend time with her. Right? I think that's a, a cool picture uh, of how the, the inverse of that is, is true. There was actually uh, a guy when uh, when I was serving in Maine with Dawson uh, who had tattoos all up his arm, and uh, you know me, clean cut Southern Baptist guy up there. I'm like, I bet this guy's got a testimony, you know, but he's got a story. And uh, turns out he did, and and I was put on the floor because of it. Um, and just kind of revealed my heart and how incredible his was and how mine was such in the wrong place when I, when I you know, just saw his external appearance. But it turns out he had met someone who worked at a tattoo parlor and started sharing the gospel with him. And he started going and, and he said, I got a tattoo just so I could sit there and share the gospel with him. He said he, he came to faith in Christ right there. 
I was like, that's just one tattoo. Your arms are covered in tattoos. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I kept going back to that tattoo parlor. He said, they started letting me lead a Bible study. He goes, every time I led somebody to Christ in that tattoo parlor, he said, I got a new tattoo. And his arms were covered. <laughs> so you talk about, you know, in, 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 in Paul talking to the, the church at Corinth, he says, to the Greek, I become a Greek. To the Jew, I become a Jew. I become all things to all people so that I might win some for Christ. Man, go get inked up for Jesus, right? <laughs> and and that, that's not the point of where we're going today, but, <laughs> but ultimately, we have this bond as believers. When everybody in this room just gasped at that story, oh, that's the same spirit inside of all of us that's rejoicing at people coming to know Jesus. Seeing the greater picture and the purpose of why we've been saved and who we're called to love and serve is supposed to unite us above all things. In verse 3, it says this, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Here's where it gets hard. We talked about warm and mushy feelings before. Now we're about to talk about the self-sacrificing portion of this love that we have for one another and we have for Jesus. This word, vain conceit, it literally translates to empty glory. So do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing that that seeks to be self-serving and good for you and fits your preferences and is ultimately what you want. Nor do things that have... The, the guise and the smoke and mirrors of being what God's called us to do, but is so far from Him. Don't run after empty glory, is what this passage is saying. And we think about the contrast of that, you know, when we see people who are building up this empire for themselves, or even we do it in our own lives, personally. We create... Um, all these things that are, as the video we watched at the beginning, you know, make us more comfortable. And, and, and I'm not saying that, um, I'm not, I don't think that guilt is a good motivator in this. I'm not, I'm not saying you should feel bad about uh, the comforts that, that you have in your life currently. But the next step beyond that is make sure there's not emptiness and, and glory that you seek. And status and influence Make sure that at the core of it, we're seeking to make much of Jesus and less, or really nothing, of ourselves. Because what we see in Scripture is that rather than empty glory, Jesus sought to empty himself. When the guards came to arrest him, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter rose and struck off the ear of the guard, the disciples were expecting this military takeover. They were experiencing, they were, they were wanting Jesus to, to completely overthrow the Roman rule. To establish the kingdom right there. But that would have been empty glory. Satan offered Jesus that when he tempted him. He took him to the high place and said, All the earth, everything that you see, I'll give it to you right now. But Jesus just said, No, that's not my mission. My mission is not to come and seek empty glory. It's to come and empty myself. 
It's so hard to, to, to preach this passage and not get into the, the very next passage where it talks about Christ's example of humility uh, and how he was being found in the appearance of man and humbled himself and became obedient to death. Uh, it, it's, it's this whole picture of how Jesus poured himself out as a drink offering. And so without preaching that passage, I want to I just bring to your attention that rather than seeking empty glory that we seek to empty ourselves as Jesus did. Because the payoff of that is that we're in the center of God's will. That we see God's kingdom established. The kingdom of heaven on earth. And so I urge you, as you think through these things, as you say, what is my role to serve the church? What is my place to ultimately serve the kingdom of God with my life. Seek to empty yourself and pour out yourself rather than to gain accolades or build up empty glory. I think this passage, as you can tell, presents us with some challenging questions. The first of, the, of which is this. Is it realistic to agree on everything with everybody. Okay? For those of you who've grown up in the church, for those of you who've been in the church for a week, know that, no, it's not realistic to agree on everything with everybody. Everyone has a preference. Everyone has weird quirks. I'm the weirdest of them all. Everyone um, has their idea of the way things, how things should be. But this passage is urging us to set it aside. So no, it's not realistic for us to agree on everything, but we can still live in unity. He, he implies this in the passage that, that the body of Christ is a collective group of joined souls, as we talked about, the koinonia, overriding our preferences or any periphery uh, agenda that we might have, or even uh, tertiary beliefs is the sense that we are connected to one another's souls by the person of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So yes, we can bring glory to God when we disagree with one another. We can bring glory to God when we disagree with one another. Because we worship a reconciler who forgave immensely, who overlooked to a scandalous level where he was abused on a cross, took on the wrath of God. Actually, when, when uh, someone approached Jesus, they always had these questions for Jesus, trying to trip him up. Someone came up and said, you know, I've been told that I've got to forgive my brother seven times until you know, I can just kind of write him off. And Jesus says, no, 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 seven times, 70 times is how many times you forgive him, which is basically unlimited. Right? I hope that guy wasn't keeping a tally. I don't know if someone, someone could, could wrong you that many times. But the, the, the point is, because we were forgiven much, we can forgive much. And so when it comes to these people that we are connected at the soul with, we have the ability to forgive because Christ first forgave us. The next question I think that this, this passage is challenging us with is, is it a prerogative of the church to cater to the preferences of all people? Is it a prerogative of the church to cater to the preferences of all people? I think the answer to this is yes and no. 
Paul tells the, the Corinthian church, as we talked about, that he has become all things to all people so that he might win some. However, the tension here is that the, the, the church has to remain Christ-centered and Christ-exalting. So we can't fall into the trap of wandering off into becoming man-centric or satisfying our will and not God's. So if we develop some uh, agenda of reaching a certain type of people and we make it about attracting those kind of people, maybe it's young adults. We're going to center our church on reaching young adults. Or we're going to center our church on reaching the elderly. Who said that? Anybody, anybody, Anybody's church really just aggressively trying to reach the elderly? Not typically, no. The, the, the church exists to reach all the people that God would draw there, right? And so we have to be careful that, that we are staying Christ-exalting and Christ-centric with it. And so the, the, the question that kind of plays off of that is, what then is dividing our churches? If we're to, to step into the shoes of the church at Philippi and, and say, okay, how is God communicating to us that, that we need to, to ex- express more unity and, and, and show that we're not a divided church? Because the, the Bible, and, and Philippians for that matter, presents the church as a racially, generationally, socioeconomically diverse community of believers. Do our churches look like that, or are our churches more homogenous? Are there people filling up our churches that look just like us? It's interesting, as a staff, we uh, participated in the State of the Church address by the Barna Group, and they collect all kinds of data and, and um, you know, talk about different uh, phenomenons that go on through the church demographically and, and statistically and all that, but... The, the, the point of emphasis I want to draw you to there is that uh, they talked about assimilation versus accommodation. Assimilation is where we try to take people who are different than us, good-hearted, with good intentions, and plug them into how we do church, how we worship, how we preach, how we just basically make them a, co- a cookie cutter of ourselves. Right? That's assimilating people. And I don't know that that's necessarily what the Bible represents. I think that the, the Bible is, is encouraging us and leading us to be more accommodating, as we talked about. Being aware of the needs of others. Being aware of the preferences of others. Hey, contemporary service, sing a hymn every now and then. Hey, uh, traditional service, do something more contemporary. And, and, and I, I get the tension of, of what I'm saying here. Um, and, and I'm not trying to step on toes or ruffle feathers. I'm just trying to represent what Scripture is leading us to do here. Because if we're in a church business meeting and we're trying to decide what worship style we should go with, I would hope that, and this might be idealistic, but I would hope that the side that prefers traditional might say, hey, you know what? We're, we're going to forsake what we want in this, and we want you to have it your way. And the other side, no, 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 you have it your way. And we get in this argument about, uh, about you know, who can be the most humble. No, uh, about, you know, who can, who can uh, forsake what they want. I think that's the picture, and, and there's no clear-cut answer. If you should do church this way and this way, and in such a pro, pro, programmatic, um, you know, methodological way, but... Conduct how you do church in a way that demonstrates love for Jesus and love for others. 
And so there we have more the heart of God represented than some set of rules. So the next, uh, the, the next part of that, I think, too, is um, hurt and judgment is dividing our churches. Uh, we also went to a, um, a conference in Montgomery a few weeks ago as a staff. Uh, there's a guy named Steve Parr who wrote a book, Why They Stay. And it's about just kind of the, uh, the epidemic of millennials flooding out of the church uh, and people not returning. And he talked about the number one reason why people leave the church was hurt. Hurt by loss of a relationship, hurt by division at church, or hurt by the hypocrisy of those they respected. Those are the, the three types of hurt that people experience as to why they left the church. Now, in reading that list, I'm sure if I asked to, and surveyed the room, it would be unanimous that everyone has been hurt by the church in some way. Has been hurt by someone in the church, has been hurt by a decision that was made, has been hurt by the loss of a relationship. You're going to get hurt. That's part of it. If, if we are around people long enough, people are going to hurt you. You are going to hurt people. Oh man, but overriding that is the opportunity for us to say, you know what? I'm not at this church because of how it makes me feel, how my preferences are represented. I'm here because I love Jesus and Jesus first loved me. And that's not to excuse any type of hurt that you experience or try to write it off, but it's to say that there's healing and there's restoration and there's the ability to be reconciled. Because the gospel informs us of that. And so I challenge you with that. And be sensitive to other people and how the things that you do might impact them. And be, be quick to show the initiative to apologize and try to restore a relationship. Even, even if, if the other person's in the wrong. It's not too much for us to humble ourselves and consider others more significant than ourselves. To take on a lowly view of ourself so that we could raise someone else up for the glory of God. There's a, a church that I really respect and admire in, in Tuscaloosa, but uh, painted on the walls when you walk in is this phrase, we exist for those not here yet. And I might add something to the end of that. We exist for those not here yet and the person sitting next to you. So t today, as a journey congregation, the challenge of Scripture that's before us today is for us to say... Because of the great love that we've experienced from Christ, we are going to exist for those who have yet to walk through that door and for those who are sitting in the seat next to us and not for the person that we're in the shoes of. So love others as Jesus loved you so that the world may know that we are His. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it's been preserved for us to see firsthand 
how you've shaped the world through your son, Jesus Christ. You turned it upside down. And Father, you're using the church. You're using not buildings, but people to bring an awareness and aroma about who you are. And Father, we are compelled to go to the ends of the earth with the message that you've given us. And so today I pray that, Father, that that we would die to ourselves, that we would die to our preferences. We would seek to be bridge builders and break down walls that exist, Father, all for the sake of your name, not for our glory that's empty, Father. we have such a high view of who you are and what you're calling us to do. Father, I just pray that we would have practical steps that we could take to do that. Uh, That you would ignite in our hearts a passion to go to those who are hurting and broken and lost around us, Father, because you've given us the solution and the hope. Father, may we worship you through that. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.